Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited about the guests that we have today. I mean, quite a quite a global entrepreneur, you know, that we have, you know, I think that uh, listening to today's episode is going to help us to make the world a little bit smaller. And we're going to be, you know, learning about all the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, and everything in between. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Daniel, you welcome to the show. Great to be here. So originally born in Southern California. I mean, that sounds like a pretty amazing upbringing. Give us a little of a uh, Walk through memory lane. Yeah, I was born and raised in Camarillo, California, uh, which is in Ventura County, about an uh, hour north of L.A. Uh, I come from an international background. My, my father's uh, originally from Hong Kong, uh, but uh, I've got family in a few different places. And I think was always uh, given the perspective of the world being bigger than just the suburb, the neighborhood where I grew up. So, so. At what point do you start to develop, hey, you know, like this, this interest for traveling, for like the world, for, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, your, your, your mom from the U.S., your dad, you know, from Hong Kong, as you were saying, I'm sure that you were kind of like brought up, you know, in that, uh, in that environment of, of, of really, you know, understanding there was, that there was much more than, than, than California, but, uh, but yeah. I think so. Tell us I, about I, that. I definitely had that sense of the the multicultural fabric of the world, obviously from the family background, but even from the environment, uh, obviously a lot of uh, Latino influence where I was, uh, but also uh, was blessed to have the opportunity of my family. My parents loved to travel and took us on trips, you know, even as kids overseas, uh, both to visit family and also go to Europe and other places. And I think what, what always struck me uh, was a, a fascination with cultures and, and languages, actually, and that even kind of led uh, to me in university, uh, ending up studying Arabic, uh, doing these uh, study abroad programs uh, over in Egypt, uh, which is ultimately where my entrepreneurial journey got started. And you studied everything, but you know what uh, you were really passionate about, you know, software. So, uh, so why was that the case? And at what point do you start to develop that interest, you know, around technology and then also software? My interest in tech uh, came from uh, my friend, actually, at university, who, uh, strangely enough, uh, was quite a bit older than me. I think he's about 10 years older than me. Uh, but he actually had taken time off of school, moved to India, started his own business there, was, was, was ultimately quite successful, and then moved back to the U.S., uh, where, where I then met him. And the thing that he told me was that if you really want to do uh, a highly impactful venture uh, out, out there in the world these days, you know, technology and specifically knowing how to code is one of the most helpful things that you can do because regardless of what business you get into, uh, knowing how to code or being able to manage people uh, who, who code is going to be part of, of what you do. And that really inspired me to basically say, well, if, if I am going to bring my ideas, whatever they end up being into the real world, then having that technology background and skill set is, is clearly going to be critical to that process. Uh, and so actually from there, I started uh, originally, just kind of self-learning, um, you know, figuring out how to how to how to uh, how to code, build out simple websites, stuff like that myself. Uh, later on, took took a few uh, independent courses, uh, but that uh, is ultimately how I got the the initial background as a, as a software developer. Uh, that ultimately became quite useful down the road when I uh, started getting going with Wasoko as well. 
And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But obviously the idea, you know, started with uh, a trip to Egypt. So what happened there in Egypt? Yes. So that summer I was actually doing an intensive Arabic study uh, in, the, in the Middle East. And I had a little bit of extra time at the end. And I was just living by myself uh, in this village in, in rural Egypt. And uh, I got to know uh, some of the shopkeepers who were around there. Uh, a lot of a lot of my neighbors and other people in the town, and I realized uh, that they actually had this challenge with ordering goods for their stores. So all these small mom and pop stores, the the bodegas, the, the, the these little shops, they're selling rice and soap and sugar and everything to the the people in the town. But when they ran out of those products and they needed to restock, they actually had to drive all the way to the city, many hours away buy the products at wholesalers, transport them back. It was a whole very long, painful process. And this got me thinking on, shouldn't it be possible to build out a technology platform, a technology solution that can help solve this problem of knowing what goods are needed where in good time? And, uh, you know, who would have thought, because you go back to, to uh, the University of Chicago, and uh, who would have thought that one of the initiatives that they have to really foster Innovation is also a nice initiative to invite people to drop out of school because they did the business plan competition. You ended up winning, and then you decide that it's time to uh, to get out of there. So, so, so I'm sure that your parents were not happy. Yeah, definitely not. I would say uh, initially they were quite uh, hesitant uh, about uh, what I wanted to do, especially you know my my father's from more more traditional background, and uh, you know education has always been very, very, very highly uh, prized and, and important. And, uh, but, you know, I made a strong case. I would say what I, how I pitched it originally was, oh, I'm just taking a, a short leave of absence to pursue this, uh, this project. And uh, if it doesn't go well, then, you know, immediately I'll be back to school. And I had discussed with the university officials, everything, the flexibility, they, 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 they gave me that guarantee that, okay, at any time you want to come back, just re-register for classes, no problems. There'll be no restrictions, all of that. Um, so, so I had a very, uh, low downside case that I was able to make, um, you know, thanks to the university and, and their flexible policies. Um, but yeah, that, that was definitely uh, a kind of a bold thing for me to do. And, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm grateful to my parents uh, for, for giving me the chance uh, to make it happen. But uh, I think these days, uh, they're, they're pretty happy with how it's been going. So how, how nerve-wracking was it dropping out of school? And what was that process of starting to reaching out to potential partners and to start to polish this further? I think the most uh, nerve-wracking part was definitely the the call I had with my dad. But uh, once I got through that, then the uh, the 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 process moving forward was pretty uh, straightforward. I think I was quite excited. There was a lot that I wanted to do in terms of my own uh, kind of coding development, getting the initial platform prototype built out. Um, I was uh, very uh, excited, happy to be going to all the entrepreneurship events. Uh, one of the things that I think I actually took advantage of quite well was that even though I dropped out uh, of classes and didn't have the kind of university uh, schedule, I still stayed in the university neighborhood and was able to take advantage of all the resources. So they would have these entrepreneurship events at the, the Booth Business School uh, all the time. And there were these professors that I was able to work with, talk to, to get advice on what we were doing. Uh, and so I had all the benefits of, of being in college uh, without actually having to go to class, which was uh, basically a dream. So. That, that was really helpful in the early days as, as I was just 
starting to get this idea even basically figured out. And uh, just for the people that are listening, what ended up being Wasoko? What is the business model and how do you guys make money? Yes. So Wasoko, as it exists today, is an e-commerce company that connects large manufacturers. So think Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Nestle, but also uh, uh, regional manufacturers uh, who are producing products uh, locally in uh, these countries uh, across Africa with the mom and pop stores. So these small bodegas, these kiosks that are selling these essential goods to over 90% of the, the local population. And so basically what we do is shops are able to order through our app. So there's a Wasoko app where they can browse and scroll and find the rice, soap, sugar, toilet paper, whatever products they need. They place an order just like any other e-commerce platform. And then we as Wasoko actually arrange free same-day delivery for those goods to get to their store and restock them as quick as possible so that people in the community are able to go to that shop and get what they need. On the back of that, we do a little bit of other stuff now in terms of uh, providing flexible uh, payment options uh, for those stores. Um, we're, we're looking at kind of building out other products and tools and services that uh, those shops can be empowered with uh, through our app, as well as we're also looking kind of upstream at other interesting things we can do in the supply chain. One of the things that's quite exciting these days is uh, uh, we've uh, been launching our own private label products. Uh, so you think kind of like Kirkland with Costco and uh, the own in-house brands they have to kind of meet consumer needs at even kind of better value and pricing uh, than the traditionally branded products. So, so I guess uh, out of all places, why Africa? Yeah. So if you look specifically at the space that we're in, which is fast moving consumer goods and specifically informal retail, um, there, there's no other region that is as reliant on informal retail as Africa. As I said, over 90% of all goods are bought and sold through these small informal retail shops. And really, the, the problems, the pain points that those shops face are much higher than even small shops in other markets. And so this kind of core challenge of as a shopkeeper, when I need to restock on rice or soap, having to leave my store, go to a different town or downtown in a big city to buy goods, transport them back myself, uh, waste all that time, uh, pay the, pay, pay the, the, the fees, lose sales uh, while I'm out of my store. Uh, this is a really significant pain point. And on the other side, as a, as a brand, as a, as a manufacturer, you have this really opaque uh, series of middlemen who are, there's usually three or four layers between the manufacturer and the actual shop themselves. So you don't really have a way to ensure that your products are even getting to the stores uh, in the first place. You're just kind of handing them over to a big distributor and hoping uh, that, they, that they move your product. And so really, I think that the, the pain point, the opportunity, given that this is an over $700 billion a year space um, uh, in the fastest growing continent uh, in the world, uh, is, is really something that uh, is a huge opportunity for tech uh, to bring efficiency to and ultimately to save money uh, for the 1.5 billion people uh, who live in Africa. And, uh, and in this case, how was it like, you know, the, the arrival as an outsider? Because, I mean, ultimately, you know, you're a foreigner, you know, coming there, starting the business. So... How was that process like? Yeah, so thankfully, we actually did have a, uh, a very strong welcome and introduction. The reason or ultimately how we ended up launching the business, uh, firstly, in, in Kenya, uh, which is in East Africa, uh, was because we had the invitation from a number of brands and, and, and companies, their offices over here. And so there was a whole process where 
once I built out the platform and I was able to uh, kind of do uh, some demos and, and, and show different uh, companies and, and offices uh, across emerging markets what, uh, what the platform could do, um, there was a very strong interest that came specifically from East Africa and, and Kenya. And I think that had to do with the fact that Kenya, at least at the time, was the world leader in mobile money. Um, so there, there have been these systems in place for actually over 15 years that allow for basically uh, text message uh, money transfer. So without even needing a smartphone or an app, you're able to uh, just send money directly to anybody as long as you know their phone number. Um, and I think that kind of system, the fact that that was already widely established, uh, meant that there uh, was interest in other types of digital ordering platforms, in this case, uh, for, for shops to kind of order and restock for their for their goods as well. And so having that invitation where um, I had a couple calls with uh, some companies that were based here in Kenya um, and went through the system and they basically said, hey, if you come out here, we'll be the first people to try them out. That gave us a very kind of strong foothold to, to come in and be able to focus and, and know what we needed to do. It wasn't like I was just out here running around without any kind of structure or any kind of interest already uh, settled. So that anchor was really helpful in getting us going. And then from there, we were able to quickly bring on other companies who were interested in using the platform uh, to list and sell their goods as well. And then also, what was, the, what was that experience of going through a pivot? Because, uh, you know, like everything, the business model that one launches, you know, obviously you got to see how the market reacts. You always need to adapt yourself to the market. So how was that for you guys? Yes, we had a significant pivot in the first uh, year or so of operations once we got going in Kenya. And that was specifically to move away from a pure marketplace model to an actually integrated uh, first party logistics model. And what that basically meant is before what I initially envisioned was being able to just have a platform where companies, brands would list their goods and then um, the shops would order them but then the logistics, the delivery would be handled by brands, the manufacturers themselves. And we realized uh, pretty quickly that um, that was not working, or at least it was not working well enough. Uh, there was something like half of the orders that were coming through uh, were just not being delivered by the company or their distributor. And once we dug into it, we realized there was a reason that made sense, which is that a lot of these orders were quite small. You were seeing uh, shops that were ordering only say one box of a, of a company's products, you know, one box of soap, that kind of thing. And uh, with these kind of small items, you know, that can be worth only, uh, you know, five, $10. And uh, what that meant was that in order to actually figure out how to do reliable logistics, we had to get involved in doing it directly ourselves. Um, and so we ran a small pilot with that, uh, where we asked a few of the brands, hey, what do you think if uh, we tried doing some of this delivery, this logistics ourselves. And this is actually before the days of dark stores and uh, on-demand quick delivery. So it was a little bit of, a, of an experiment uh, with, with, without precedent, certainly in the markets where we were. Uh, but we were able to demonstrate that when we did do our own logistics and we were able to get to you know 95% plus uh, successful delivery rates, um, that that indeed did lead to a su successful and positive customer experience and something that uh, customers were then uh, excited to use and rely on. Uh, and so we made the, the at the time, what was a, a pretty uh, bold decision to say, you know what, we're going to go into doing all of this logistics ourselves, which wasn't something that we knew how to do at the time. 
Uh, and so that was a, that was a big, big move, uh, big investment to actually set up our own warehouses, our own last mile delivery. Uh, but once we did get that going, uh, we, uh, we saw significant growth um, that has continued to this day. And that's been the model uh, that we've relied on. And then from a, from a capital raising perspective, how much capital have you guys raised to date? In total, we've raised approximately $140 million to date. And what has been that uh, journey of raising this money? Because, I mean, you guys have raised from players with very deep pockets out of the U.S., like Tiger Global and others. So how has it been that process of being able to get, uh, you know, those big players that are so far away to get comfortable with the idea of investing in a company out of Africa? It's been a long process for sure. We started off our operations in Kenya in 2016, and it was only two years later that we were even able to raise our seed round, uh, which was a $2 million uh, round led by um, some uh, specialist investors focused on technology in Africa, uh, 40X Ventures, and, and a few other folks. Uh, and even that process at that time was very difficult. Um, we had one investor that uh, before that gave us a term sheet. Um, but then actually, uh, two weeks before they closed, uh, there was a scandal that broke out and the fund had to close down. And so we thought we were about to get $2 million from that first investor, uh, but then ended up almost going bankrupt because they collapsed and we were running out of runway. Uh, so lots of crazy drama uh, in the early days to even just you know get the, the basic seed round level investment done. Um, but thankfully, since that round, things have been much smoother. So uh, we were lucky to show a lot of strong growth 2019 to 2020. Uh, interestingly, we closed our Series A, uh, which is a $14 million round led by Kelowna Capital in February of 2020. So just before uh, COVID-19 hit and shut down the world. Um, so once again, kind of quite lucky to, to, to get that done. Um, and then we were able to show kind of very strong growth on the back of that into 2021. Uh, 2022 and uh, February 2022 is when we led that Series B, uh, uh, led by uh, Tech Global and Avenir. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process, and it's very hard. And already doing your business alone. It's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email 
at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then in this in this case, you know, how was the um, the expectations? How did the expectations shift, you know, over time, you know, to as you were going from one financing or one cycle, you know, to the next? I think there was a lot of education that we had to do uh, with our investors. Certainly, if you look at the Series B folks, Tiger Global, Avenir, um, these are US-based investors that um, have done very little, if any, investment in, in Africa to date. And so there was a lot that we had to do to explain the dynamics, explain the potential, um, which is something that I, I think is, it is unparalleled. Um, you know, there is no other billion-person market out there that is yet to be transformed by technology. Uh, Africa is really kind of final frontier when it comes to inflection points uh, for, for, for tech investing. And so given what we're doing at the foundational level to really build out uh, e-commerce uh, focused on this B2B channel, which happens to be the largest uh, uh, consumption channel on the continent, um, that, that's really something that takes some time to understand the dynamics around. But I think we were able to show um, you know, through our unit economics, through the, the kind of efficiency in our operations that we have, which uh, match up uh, very well compared to e-commerce operators uh, in the rest of the world, um, that this is really something uh, to get behind and that the potential, the tailwinds, given the growth of Africa overall, are something not to be ignored. And then in terms of executing there, you know, in, in Africa, I mean, what have been some of the, some of the um, obstacles that you guys have experienced along the way as you were scaling this thing up? A lot of obstacles for sure. I'd say that some of the biggest challenges that we have currently are with the suppliers, with the manufacturers. Uh, we have very large volumes of goods that we are selling and distributing on a day-to-day -day basis. And we, of course, need to keep very tight inventory and working capital in order to uh, optimize on those operations. Um, but we have a lot of challenges with stockouts at the supplier level where we place a purchase order for 10,000 boxes of soap, uh, but the supplier only delivers uh, 6,000 boxes. And this is obviously something that's hugely frustrating, first and foremost for our customers, but also for our operations where uh, we don't have the stock on hand that, that we're looking for. Um, and so it's a lot of this kind of stuff where, unfortunately, um, you know, the, the, the working capital financing that would usually help to smooth over a lot of operations across the supply chain uh, is really just not as mature as what you'd find um, in, uh, in, in other countries. And uh, I think that, that problem, which fundamentally comes down to financing, uh, you know, a credit, um, uh, inventory, uh, across these markets is is really what uh, holds us back, but it's something that we've been able to work around and slowly over time kind of find solutions uh, to improve uh, some of these issues. And what about the culture on the team? I mean, how how many people do you guys have on the team right now? We have over a thousand people on our team. Wow. And when you have like so many people, how do you go about culture values and making sure that everyone is uh, standing by them? It's quite tough, obviously, having uh, that many people on the team. And I think from something like 20 different nationalities spread across uh, six different countries, this is uh, not an easy thing to do to kind of build a cohesive culture. I think we've really tried to do this by uh, being explicit about what our values are, what, uh, uh, what it means uh, to, to, to be part of Wasoko and 
what our mission purpose ultimately are as a company. And, you know, through that, through repetition, you know, bringing it up, tying back uh, these values to uh, our operations, bringing them up in, uh, in meetings uh, and, 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 and pointing out behaviors, uh, both positive and negative, that, uh, that, that, that affect that culture. Um, you know, that, that's the only way uh, to, to build up uh, a culture at this scale. Um, you know, when, in the early days when it's just a, uh, a, a dozen people sitting in a room, you know, culture is something that happens naturally. Uh, you don't have to really point it out. You don't have to be explicit about it. Um, but at this scale, across so many different locations, uh, you have to have a structure around it. You have to be explicit and you have to continue to repeat it uh, every day uh, so that people really see it in their, uh, in their daily work. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the, where the vision of Washoko is fully realized. What does that world look like? That world would be one in which every shop across Africa has uh, the Wasoko app and is using it to serve uh, people in their communities, not just uh, with cheaper goods than what they'd get otherwise. You know, a single mother who is able to get rice for, you know, 10% less than what she'd be able to otherwise without Wasoko uh, providing goods to her community, to the shop that she goes to. Um, but also uh, Wasoko being able to provide access to so many more services than just the physical goods as well. Some of the things we're working on are going to allow uh, people to access financial services through Wasoko shops that otherwise probably wouldn't be available in their community. Uh, we're looking to kind of open up the infrastructure that we have to allow other companies uh, to, 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 to provide their products uh, through our logistics and through our, 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 our technology channels as well. And so I think ultimately what Wasoko is doing is setting up the omni-channel infrastructure, both the tech as well as the physical logistics to help access and, and distribute goods and services to as many people as possible across the African continent. And ultimately, if that's done, that's a huge boost in economic activity and hopefully well-being livelihoods uh, for the 1.5 billion people who live on the continent, as well as a huge opportunity uh, to enable other businesses to be built on the back of the infrastructure that we have as well. Also, you know, one thing that I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening that are wondering, how is being an entrepreneur in Africa, you know, perhaps, you know, in your case, you're in Zanzibar, but how is, how is it different from, let's say, being an entrepreneur in the U.S.? Great question. I would say that the biggest difference is the need to build out a huge number of services and, and tools directly yourself. So if you look at the example of the pivot that we went through, where we came into the market just uh, imagining that we could be a marketplace platform not thinking that we would have to get involved in anything with the logistics or anything as well, only to discover that the logistics services the distribution that was being provided was not at the quality that we required, and that therefore, if we wanted to uh, do it right, we would have to do it ourselves. Um, that kind of necessity is um, a fact of life as an entrepreneur um, across a lot of the, the, the areas that you need as a business operator. Um, and so this kind of um, requirement, because these business ecosystems, especially in the technology space, are less robust, they're, they're, they're not nearly as big as um, what you find, uh, say, uh, for example, in the US, that means that you have to do more of these activities yourselves. And 
Um, you can view that both in the light of, okay, um, that's going to slow you down. It's going to be more costly, what have you. But you can also view in the light of this is really foundational and provides a huge barrier to entry for anyone else once you scale up and actually get these activities and operations uh, working properly. And that's definitely how I see it um, you know, in, in our sense. And what I'd also say is if you look at it from an overall ecosystem impact, um, whereas in the U.S., um, you can build a big business just by optimizing some process, you know, let's say, um, you know, a click through uh, advertising conversions. If you can improve those by 1%, you know, that, that's a multi-billion dollar business for sure. But it's really not transformational in the sense that there are already, you know, lots of click through advertising optimization services out there. And, you know, ultimately, what impact is that going to have, you know, for those customers, for those users who are going to be impacted? Whereas for us, to build out these entire supply chains and provide, you know, delivery services to shops that previously had to spend, you know, half a day, you know, uh, 10, 20 hours a week going to source their products, getting limited options, bad pricing, all that. And to suddenly be able to provide on-demand delivery with a wider selection of goods at the best prices around, you know, that ultimately then goes out to serve tens of millions of people. You know, that's the kind of thing that's only really possible in a market like uh, uh, like the ones that we're in in Africa. And so I think it also depends on who you are as an entrepreneur in the sense of, you know, do you want to optimize on something that already exists in an established big market? Um, or uh, do you want to transform something in a place that might not have any services of the kind that you're trying to do um, previously whatsoever? So let's say... You know, now, I mean, obviously we were, we were talking earlier about the, the, the way that you envision the future, you know, how things, you know, you, you, you find them to perhaps crystallize or hopefully they crystallize in that, in that way that you are all envisioning with the team. But let's say now, you know, we're looking towards the past, you know, more than the future. And I'm able to bring you back in time in a time machine, you know, able to bring you back in time, let's say nine years ago where you were, you know, incubating the thought of starting something that would eventually, you know, materialize into Washoko. So let's say you're able to have a sit down with that younger self, that younger self that maybe is even thinking about dropping out from the University of Chicago. And you're able to sit down that younger Daniel, and you're able to give that younger Daniel one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? That one piece of advice would be to just get working, just go to the ground, talk to the users, talk to the customers, talk to the partners. Don't wait, don't double guess yourself. Think that you're not uh, uh, capable, that you're not uh, skilled enough or experienced enough to, to, to take on those challenges and, and, and to learn about them. I think that uh, there are so many things in the world that uh, and so many people that are held back um, by their own kind of self doubts and and misbeliefs that they're not qualified uh, to 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 work on a certain problem uh, or area. And I think I spent a lot of time being uh, perhaps a bit more hesitant than I, I could have been otherwise in just diving in and starting to work on things. And I think if if you take on that spirit and you're willing to be agile, um, you know. Uh, make mistakes quickly and learn from them and try out other things that you can then uh, learn from and, and quickly adjust from from there, um, then ultimately, uh, you know, there's no way that, 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 that you can ultimately 
you know, stay off the track for too long. Eventually, you will find your path onto something that, um, uh, you know, is really adding value for people in their lives. And, you know, that's ultimately a discovery process that, you know, can't be, uh, can't be skipped, uh, except for by trying to go out there and do it yourself. I love it. So, Daniel, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so I'm actually uh, very much off of uh, social media. Uh, I would say the the only platform that uh, I, I'm using regularly these days is uh, is LinkedIn, and uh, regularly is uh, a strong word there. So I'd say um, uh, definitely, uh, please, if there's uh, something relevant, uh, reach out uh, on my LinkedIn. Uh, should just be there, Daniel Yu Wasoko. Um, uh, you know, happy to support, especially other entrepreneurs. Uh, building, you know, great things to help people in Africa, um, which, as I said, I think is really the the final frontier uh, for technology and transformation on uh, on this planet. And uh, you know, excited uh, to see uh, what happens in the ecosystem for the next few decades to come. Amazing. Well, hey, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.